This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I know you love podcasts. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people out there who still haven't been turned on to podcasts or don't really know what a podcast is. So help celebrate Podcast Month by sharing Kick-Ass News or any of your favorite podcasts with at least two friends. Or better yet, share us with all your friends on Twitter or Facebook and be sure to tag us when you do and use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Spread the word about this podcast or any podcast. And if you want to do something else to support Kick-Ass News, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash kickassnews. Believe it or not, this show costs actual money, and your contribution will help offset some of those costs. So become a part of what I'm doing here by going to GoFundMe.com slash kickassnews and making a donation. Thanks for listening. And now, enjoy the podcast. I'll ask you one more time. What should America do? Okay. We want you to fuck off and leave us alone. All right, fine. You know what? Fine. Yeah. Fine. Done. Yeah. But not right away. <laughs> we could still use the aid money. And a few weapons. And some investments. <laughs> what I'm saying is, if you could gradually off, that would work better for everybody. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was Bassem Youssef, the man described as the John Stewart of the Arab world, appearing on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with the John Stewart of America, well, John Stewart. After starring in the most popular show in the history of Arab-language television, Bassem Youssef came to the U.S., where he now hosts Democracy Handbook with Bassem Youssef on Fusion TV and was recently the subject of the documentary Tickling Giants. He was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine and one of Foreign Policy magazine's 100 leading global thinkers. But the story of how Bassem Youssef got to this point is as unexpected as it is dramatic. He was an Egyptian surgeon waiting for his visa to take a fellowship with a hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, when the Arab Spring came knocking on Egypt's door and protesters took to the streets to condemn the 30-year reign of Egyptian strongman Hosni Mubarak. As Egyptian police and anonymous thugs used violence to try and shut down the peaceful revolution, Youssef used his talents as a doctor to treat wounded protesters at a makeshift trauma center in Tahrir Square, and used his gift for humor and a makeshift set in his laundry room to shoot five-minute videos poking fun at the crooked government and their lies. Just those nine videos received 40 million downloads on YouTube and Bassem Youssef was offered his own television show. The incendiary satirical news program Alberna Meg chronicled the events of the 2011 Egyptian revolution, the fall of President Hosni Mubarak, the rise of Mubarak's successor, Mohamed Morsi, and Morsi's subsequent ouster by the equally corrupt military leader and current president of Egypt, Abdel el-Sisi. Youssef not only captured his nation's dissent, but stamped it with his own brand of humorous political criticism in which the Egyptian government and the complicit media became the prime laughing stock.
So potent were Yusuf's commentary, jokes, and skits that the authoritarian government accused him of insulting Islam and the Egyptian presidency. After a six-hour-long police interrogation, Youssef was released, and while his case was eventually dismissed, his television show was terminated, and Youssef, fearful for his safety, fled his homeland. In his new book, Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring, Basim Youssef recounts his remarkable life so far and offers hysterical riffs on the hypocrisy, instability, and corruption that has long animated Egyptian politics. From the attempted cover-up of the violent clashes in Tahrir Square to the belief by officials that Youssef was a CIA operative recruited by John Stewart to bring down the country through sarcasm. Today, Basim Youssef joins me on the show to talk about all that and more he shares how he went from doctor to TV host during one of the most tumultuous chapters in Egypt's history and the help and encouragement he got from the man who he calls a brother, The Daily Show's John Stewart. He recalls being put in the awkward position of having to explain his own jokes to his interrogators and an equally awkward meeting he had with the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. He discusses his disappointment at many Egyptian protesters who he says simply traded Islamist fascism for military fascism. He reveals some of the tensest moments behind the scenes of his show Alberna Meg and remembers the heartbreaking day he fled Egypt for good. Plus, why he's feeling a disturbing degree of deja vu as he covers the presidency of Donald Trump. Coming up with Bassem Youssef in just a moment. Basim Youssef is the Egyptian doctor turned political satirist who started posting YouTube videos during the 2011 Egyptian revolution and then hosted Alberna Meg, which translates to The Show in English. The Show was a satirical news program that became the most popular show in the history of Arab language TV and was compared to Jon Stewart's The Daily Show. In 2013, Bassem Youssef was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. He has since left Egypt for the U.S., where he hosts a show for Fusion TV called The Democracy Handbook, and he's written an entertaining and relevant new book called Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring. Bassem Youssef, welcome. Hi. Well, I want to start by asking you this. When we Americans think of the Middle East a good sense of humor is probably not the first thing that comes to mind. Is there a tradition of satire or a comedy culture in Egypt in that region? Of course. I mean, like, uh, we always had comedy. How can you survive without comedy and satire? I know that what you hear from the Middle East has been oh, for a long time associated with uh, turmoil, with uh, st um, um, you know, wars and uh, violence, but this is absolutely not true. We have a very established and ancient sense of uh, satire and, and, and humor. Uh, it, it What was what happened is just like after the revolution, my show just brought political satire to mainstream. It was always been underground because this is how you deal with stress, oppression, struggle. And um, uh, what was allowed for decades was a sense of social satire, 
political satire was not allowed because uh, dictators don't like to be laughed at. Well, when the protests against then-Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak started in Tahrir Square in 2011, you were a surgeon waiting to come to the U.S. and take a residency in Cleveland. I'm assuming getting involved in a revolution and becoming a political satirist must have been the farthest thing from your mind. Of course. I'm. Uh, everything that happened in that year was the farthest thing from anybody's mind. People were uh, going on with their lives. There are people even working abroad. And when that happened, people left everything dropped everything and for the first time we felt that this is our country we are taking it back we can actually have a voice that we matter when i was i was just waiting for this the the papers to come and i uh, uh i made these videos youtube videos i didn't even think that it would catch fire i didn't even think that people would watch it maybe a few thousand views here and there and then um uh, it caught fire and uh, it changed my life the same way that the revolution changed everybody's life at one point, you had been approved for the residency in Cleveland. Was this when you had your TV show or when you were popular on YouTube? So the papers from the H1, like the H-1 visa papers, mm-hmm. uh, arrived in May. This okay. is where I was signing my TV show when my YouTube video, right. YouTube videos were successful for a couple of, two, three months. And then I had a decision to make. So should I drop everything and go to Cleveland, or should I continue with this new adventure? So I continued with the adventure. Oh, well, I'm sure that a lot of things were a consideration, including your wife and family. How did you come to make that decision to stay? Because you had wanted to get out of there and go to Cleveland and be a doctor forever, it seems. Well, uh, at that time, many people were very content to be away from Egypt or even wanted mm-hmm. to go to leave Egypt. But kind of, this was uh, marking a new beginning for everybody. And uh, they, we wanted to stay. As for my, my wife was always understanding. She's always been supporting, uh, supportive for, uh, to, to me. And um, my, my, my mom, which is well, at that time was the big obstacle, uh, that was actually happy because I'm not going to leave her and I'm going to stay <laughs> next to her in Egypt. So like any Middle Eastern mom, yeah. she welcomed the decision for me to stay. Yeah, and at some point you talked about how later on your decision to stay and be a political satirist started to put a strain on your relationship with your mom. Yes, uh, because especially when the military took over because my mom belongs to an older generation that uh, reveres the military. The military is even more sacred than religion. The military Mm -hmm. is the only thing that's bringing or keeping the country together. And they, they were very affected by the media. Uh, which was weird uh, that I'm the one who's supposed to be fighting uh, the brainwashing of the media that my parents were uh, <laughs> uh, kind of yeah. took in what the media is telling them. And she didn't like the fact that I am even remotely uh, criticizing the army. And um, that put a lot of strain on our, our relationship. What does that go back to? Does that go back to the war with Israel? Or why is the military something that no one ever seems to want to touch? This is six decades of Mm -hmm. indoctrination. Really? Uh, People think that the religion is the only thing that indoctrinates people. The military indoctrinates people a lot. And of course, going into four wars with Israel... uh, When you you put people in, in, in a continuous state of war... People cannot dare and speak up because you're speaking up against the country. You're anti, uh, anti-Egyptian. 
mm-hmm. or here in this case here in anti-American. It's the same thing, right. you know. You cannot dare, and and the thing is, like I understand the respect that people have here to, for the military in in America, but people always respect the troops. They, but we take it a, a, a further. You can't even speak about the uh, the commanders. You can't speak mm-hmm. about anything that the army will do, and the army is not um, does not submit to um, as uh, a civilian authority like here. Mm-hmm. The army in itself is an authority. Is it is authority. it is a state within a state, and they control a big chunk of the economy. And if you speak against that, which is totally not related to combat or or battles or war, you still considered a traitor. Yeah. And this is how they protect themselves. They get away. At the end of the day, they become um, a money-making machine, uh, ah. an, an econo- economic entity. Right. military-industrial pr- complex. Yeah, but here, yeah. the military-industrial complex, at least they answer to Congress. Right. At least <laughs> you can have some yeah. sort of transparency. Mm-hmm. At least you can speak up against that. But there, if e- they even do stuff that are not related to military activities. They do... Um, car industries they do food industries mm-hmm. they own resorts yeah. hotels restaurants wow. even uh makeup salons and and uh, and hairdresser salons it doesn't it, it there's nothing there yeah. that is not uh, it's, uh, like cement factories constructions uh, infrastructure everything so if you speak uh, against them you're speaking against the country and yeah. we are one with the country. The same thing when we have religious leaders who, if you speak against them, they are one with Islam or religion or Christianity or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you talk a lot about what an inspiration John Stewart and The Daily Show were for you. Um, he later became a mentor to you. When you started Alberna Meg, did people in your country even know what The Daily Show or Jon Stewart were, or was this type of political satire something totally foreign to Egyptians? So because of the language barrier and because of the political uh, knowledge barrier, because even if you know the language, you wouldn't be interested to understand what's going on between the Democrats and the Republicans and what is Fox News and all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the people who liked John Stewart was a minority that underst- that were very very well educated. They travel abroad. Uh, when I brought John Stewart, I I kind of helped of introducing him to the rest of the people, yeah, like like to the masses. So he became someone who was only known by the elites to someone who's known by the masses, especially when he visited me in Egypt. Um, give the listeners who've never seen your show an example or two of segments you would do or issues you would make fun of on Alberta Mag. Well, no, we we were very, the thing is because we're always up against either a military or a religious <laughs> yeah. uh, authority. We we make it very clear that we are not attacking the idea of the army okay. or the idea of religion. Mm-hmm. It is the people who represent both of them, and it was mm-hmm. it was like a very difficult job because you're always walking on a thin line mm-hmm. and you still no matter how much you tried you still uh, you still accused of of tarnishing both of them yeah yeah and what's funny about this is throughout the run of your show you were accused of being everything from a CIA agent to a Zionist spy, a secret Coptic Christian, an Islamist fundamentalist, a puppet of Iran. Uh, By free, that standard, a, free, uh, a member of the Freemasons, the, oh, yeah. the Illuminati, the, free, yeah. the Illuminati, uh, yeah. 
an atheist, a self-hating Muslim, yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, based on that, you appeal to just about everyone, or you alienate everyone, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's funny that the people that I alienated and and still appeal to, both of them were watching the show, so both some of them watched the show because they liked them, and watched, well, some of them were hate-watching the show, mm-hmm. which were very good for our... Um, uh, ratings, so it's good. <laughs> um, in your process with the show, were there writers' meetings where you and your team would pitch ideas and thought, well, this is a really funny idea, but it might get the show pulled off the air, or this is hilarious, but it might land one of us in prison? Were those considerations behind the scenes? All all the time. We mm-hmm. were, and sometimes we'd crack, crack the best jokes, and we would just laugh and say, like, oh, we wish we can put that on, but we can't. <laughs> When the Muslim Brotherhood was in power, you were actually invited to sit down and talk to the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. I think his name is Al-Shadr. Khairat Shadr, yes. And you talk about how he would sit there and he bragged about duping the ultra-conservative Salafists in parliament. And you said he was basically a con man. So was or is the Muslim Brotherhood more opportunist than ideological, in your opinion? 100%. Of course, they are ideological at the end, but they are use opportunistic uh, methods to do it. Uh, the thing is, there is no one who is ideological. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of, all of these people who hide behind ideologies are con men, whether this ideology is conservatism or, um, or uh, uh, religious, whatever. I mean, the true people who I, I like, really don't have an ideology are the people who are willing to live with everybody with coexistence. And these are very, I mean, even people who call themselves liberals, they are opportunistic. And um, uh, and, th- 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 and the thing is, the worst is using the, um, uh, the uh, uh, excuse of religion and national security because this is how you blackmail people through mm-hmm. it. And uh, it doesn't, and both of them are two sides of the same coin. And and the problem with uh, the American administrations and the Western administrations in general that, that they think that a military regime in the Middle East is a much better option than a religious one. What they don't know right. that they are empowering really uh, indirectly em- em- empowering dictatorship, and in the same time, it will lead eventually to radicalization of the public. And mm-hmm. when the military are going to be um, uh, cornered because of uh, deteriorated uh, deteriorating economical condition, the first thing that they will do is they they will put their hands in the hands of a radical extremist and they will form an alliance. And this happened before. People don't uh, remember or don't know about Sudan, for example. Jafar Nomeri was a very famous uh, dictator in Sudan, and he was a brutal military dictator. And when things were going s- sour with the economy, the first thing that he did. He sat with the Muslim Brotherhood of Sudan and he made a Sharia law-based state. Mm-hmm. So it's not the first thing. If you yeah. think that Sisi is um, secular, think again. He is as conservative as anybody else. And when he gets uh, when he gets cornered, he will just like uh, use religion. And he's, he's already using religion. Yeah, and you said that under the Morsi government and the Muslim Brotherhood, there were a number of charges that were leveled against you, but the one that worried you most was this charge of insulting Islam. Why was that the one that really scared you? Because this is the one that they used to blackmail people. How can you defend that? Mm-hmm. I mean, they will never come and, and accuse you of speaking your, uh, speaking your mind or 
because you have a different opinion. They have to show the people that he's doing that to undermine the religion or undermine national security. The same thing happened under Sisi. The one that was always worrying me is insulting the army. Mm-hmm. These two that you cannot get out of. And, and this is, this is what, what happens with conservative societies like this. Uh, they will use uh, religion, they will use national security, and they will use sex. For example, they will accuse you of uh, uh, promoting homosexuality or uh, f- uh, f- uh, free sexual practices or porn. And how can you defend that? You know, <laughs> how can you defend that? Obviously, because oh, this is what they mean when when they mean freedom of expression or freedom of speech or freedom. There is no absolute freedom. It has to be checked by our checks and balances. Mm-hmm. So this is how you they corner people who call for freedom. And when the prosecutor brought you in for an interrogation, your retelling of that experience is so absurd that it plays out like, I guess, an Inspector Clouseau movie or something. Talk about how clueless they were. So uh, first of all, uh, as I went in, there's many people who work in the in the office of the general prosecutor, which is the same as the general attorney here. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were big fans of me and they were taking pictures inside his <laughs> office as he was starting the interrogation. And uh, the interrogation went for six hours. And what was really in- interesting that the interrogation was directed as uh, asking, why are these jokes funny? Which is the worst thing that you can tell <laughs> to a comedian. And then, um, but the, the uh, and the most memorable part is that at the beginning of the interrogation, when they weren't wanted to show or the evidence, which was uh, my episodes on compact discs, CDs, yeah. and they were tr- they were trying to work the CDs in a computer, <laughs> and the computer was an outdated ninety five Windows ninety five computer. Windows. Yeah, Windows ninety five. <laughs> ninety five. Wow. Yes, from the last century, and uh, <laughs> and uh, they were working, and the CDs weren't working, and then f- for twenty minutes or so, <laughs> they were they, they they couldn't get it work, and I'm sitting there bored, and and I found myself standing up and trying to help them <laughs> to play the CDs, playing the 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 evidence against me, <laughs> the one the thing that will actually indict me, and uh, it was funny, <laughs> and uh, I tried to so do you have VLC? Do you have uh, <laughs> Do you have quick time? And then he said, all right, we will pretend <laughs> that we played the videos and uh, we'll just read from the script. And he said, like, do you have a problem with that? I told him, do I have a choice? And he said, no. <laughs> so that, 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 that just can give you an idea about yeah. how the, next, the, the rest of the six hours went. I mean, that's got to be every comedian's nightmare to have to sit there and explain your jokes to someone it was who horrible. doesn't get it. It was just horrible. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Bassem Youssef when we come back in just a moment. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like our podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. 
I've been wanting to try Stamps.com for a while now, so I was thrilled when they wanted to let me try their product. And I can now tell you from personal experience, it's incredibly easy to do. You just print out your postage and slap it on your letter or package and you're done. And if you have a small business, let me tell you, it's so much better than using those clunky postage meters where you have to pay to preload them with postage and commit to a long-term contract. With Stamps.com, you buy as little or as much postage as you need, and there are no long-term contracts. Stamps.com has really perfected the art of postage. See for yourself. Right now, use my code KICK for this special offer, a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in KICK. That's Stamps.com. Enter code KICK. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. You know, folks, I'm not exactly a gourmet cook, but one thing I've come to realize is not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook or they'll make it right. It's no wonder that they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. I've become a huge fan of Blue Apron. It's easy to prepare, it's delicious, and it's always something new. Like just this past weekend, we made their Top Chef spice-rubbed pork with sweet red onion and black beans. Man, oh man, was it good. And some of the meals I'm looking forward to in April include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada, sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice, parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, and baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com kick. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com kick. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. And now, back to the podcast. Well, once Morsi was ousted and the military took over the quote-unquote interim government, your show was on hiatus for a while and you were hesitant to go back on the air. You met again with Jon Stewart, who was filming a movie in Jordan, and by then he had kind of taken you under his wing and become something of a mentor to you. What kind of advice did he give you in that particular situation? So I was very scared to come back because how can you come back and satirize a new regime which was extremely popular? I mean, CC mm-hmm. was like almost a, demi- a demigod at that time. And uh, I was sca- we were scared. I mean, uh, at least Morsi was like, you know, half of the people hated him, half of the people liked him. But with, uh, but with CC, he was the savior. And the, the the media was ridiculous. It was just ridiculous, and it was hard. It was difficult, and um, even people from our own families were rooting for him. And uh, at the end of the day, you you want to. We were working on a thin line because you don't want to jeopardize the show and jeopardize people's jobs. Yeah. 
So uh, I went to John Stewart. He was at that time filming uh, Rosewater, and I asked him. I mean, I said like I don't know what to do. He said like, well, this is too. If this is too scary, quit. I said like I can't do that. I can't just like quit. And he said, well, if you're scared, make fun of that. Make fun of how you feel. And that was the best advice that I had. We were basically doing the show, playing the scared card. It's like mm-hmm. we're. Want to say this joke, but we can't. And people yeah. understood exactly what we meant. And he compared that moment to him going back on the air after 9-11 yes. and his approach to comedy in the yeah. post-9-11 era. Yeah, it was different because mm-hmm. he didn't have to face... Uh, he wasn't uh, afraid uh, for his life. A fascist regime. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, it was the problem of how can you make jokes in a, in a time of, of yeah. sadness and, sh- and shock. Mm-hmm. And it, but it was the same principle. It is uh, speaking your mind in a way that even if you can't say what you what's on your mind, people can feel you and can and and can relate to what you have. Mm-hmm. Why were so many of the more liberal-minded protesters who had been your allies, who fought against the Islamist fascism of the Muslim Brotherhood, willing to just roll over and blindly support the military fascism under Sisi? Well, you have to, the history of the military is 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 mm-hmm. a long one, and pe- and that. and people would welcome the military at any time. First of all, many of them didn't realize that the military would be that fascists. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did. I mean, which is funny because we do have a a, a long history of military dictatorship, but but it it has two folds. First of all, people were fed up by the Muslim Brotherhood. They saw an ugly face. A, a prequel of Afghanistan, a prequel of Iran, and they were like ready to root for the spaghetti monster, even if the even <laughs> like if he would land now, and you, they will just like go with him. And part of it is naivety. We we were naive. We were thought that oh, the military will come and it will be okay. Yeah. But you know, if so, it's it's a mixture of things. It's of course it was a mistake. M- many people of that afterwards, including me. Kind of like, and, and and kind of like it was different. People kind of realized this after a month, after six months, after a year. Um, for me, it was like, a, it took a few weeks to say that, no, no, this, I mean, I, I initially, of course, I was very happy. But uh, of course, and because the military also played it very well. They, uh, they, they surrounded themselves with people on the liberal side, people who called for freedom. And then later they kind of, they eliminated them one after the other. Mm-hmm. And when we saw that, it's like, ah, they were just using all of us. So they used yeah. all of us. And and the thing is with the Muslim Brotherhood, they can come and sit there on their high chance, like, oh, you were being played by the military. Well, they have been being played by the military for a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a matter of fact, Sisi was chosen as a minister of defense by Morsi. Morsi he, and he was celebrated by the Muslim Brotherhood as the first ever minister of defense who is religious and who is Islam-loving. <laughs> so the thing is, the military played all of us. They mm-hmm. were smarter. They had 60 years of experience. They were, um, they infiltrated, infiltrated all kinds of, um, all the sides of, the, of, uh, of the, the state. They were, again, a state within a state. And... Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and people would say like, and people would even go with, uh, to the extent of like, all right, it's military fascist, but it's mm. met- better than a religious fascist. And which is like, you can't really argue with that. Uh, I, 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 know I, didn't, I didn't, don't even want to use the, the word of lesser than two evils because it just, um, at the end of the day, it will become much worse. Yeah. 
Now, I guess the modus operandi of The Daily Show was to take on the American media and the hypocrisy there as much as take on the politicians. How much of that played into your show in Egypt, making fun of the complicity of the media? Oh, the media and and politics is, is one and the same because many of the media is ideologically driven by the state, whether that by the Islamic regime or by the military regime. They are they are one and the same. They, we do not have what you call independent media. Mm-hmm. So for us, it is one of we when even under Sisi, when we couldn't really satirize him because at that time he was the minister of defense, he wasn't really the president yet. But the media was preparing him to be the next president. So even by the fact that we were satirizing the media, we were indirectly attacking the establishment because this is they 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 read from one script, mm-hmm. and the script is dictated by by the authority. So we were indirectly doing that, and even that by us like staying at the media level was not good enough for them. They wanted us out because it means that we are spoiling or sabotaging their work that they do each mm-hmm. week. Yeah, and some of the propaganda put out by CC and the media would seem laughable to most people, but people seriously were buying into conspiracy theories such as. There was a puppet on your show that was sending messages to terrorists, and CeCe's regime claimed that they had invented a machine that cured AIDS. Now, as a medical doctor, that must have really pissed you off. Absolutely. The AIDS fiasco was one of the most laughable uh, uh, debacle that we have seen as like a whole regime that comes out and say that we have uh, invented a uh, an AIDS curing machine, and people would be, and doctors would believe that people uh, doctors will come and flock, oh. j- j- blinded by their ideology, really uh, saying that the army can do or say no wrong. Even people from my teams like Bassem, you know that you can if you're gonna satirize this, you are gonna be with a direct confrontation with the army. And I insist that so like this is terrible. They are fooling you know it, 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 it was an aids it was a machine that cured aids yeah. and hepatitis c we have between 12 and 20 million people who have hepatitis c it's endemic wow. in egypt like egypt and india yeah. are one of the biggest countries in the world with that kind of a um, proper, proper, like uh, prevalence of the disease and um, uh i i just it it i was it was an uphill battle i reminded the people every single episode with this um, uh, scandal, and I paid dearly for that. Yeah, I think you said you even had to convince your own people on your team at your show. I had to. I had to. I, I had to put on my doctor had to explain <laughs> to them God. what is the life cycle of the wow. virus. Well, talk about your last day in Egypt. You were waiting for a verdict uh, from a court case that you were involved in as you were driving to the airport? No. So I, I actually returned to Egypt from from abroad like the day before, and there was like a very uh, long um, going, ongoing uh, ver- um, arbitration case between me and the um, my channel that uh, kind of took me off the air. And it took me off the air because I just, you know, I made fun of mm-hmm. the regime and they took me off the air. So there was absolutely no way that they can win the case. And yet it was a totally politicized political oh. uh, verdict 
and I found myself having to pay them 100 million pounds with, at that time, wow. uh, 15 million dollars. And they know and knew, and this was ridiculous because there was not a single verdict in the whole of the Arab world, in the media, with, that, that is that big. And uh, uh, the verdict was around noon, and I got a call from my production team, and people said, Bassem, you have to come right now. I didn't know what's going on. I said, Bassem, the verdict is out. You own that much. And we all know that this is not a real verdict. This is something in order to, that they can use it in order to ha- harass you. They can mm-hmm. put you on a no-fly list. They can uh, wow. confiscate your money. They can put you in jail under uh, a cover of propaganda that you are a criminal and you cannot pay mm-hmm. uh, your dues. And um, five hours later, I was on a, pl- uh, on a plane outside of Egypt going to Dubai. Wow. What's the state of human rights and free speech since you left Egypt? Has it gotten worse? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can imagine that it's like North Korea, but with internet and pyramids. Hmm. Uh, we uh, And uh, after the uh, election of Trump, um, the regime has been empowered, more mm-hmm. empowered. They know that, that now they can uh, uh, screw uh, with many of the activists and the uh, NGOs and any opposition without having the occasional uh, good-for-nothing slap on the wrist that they had it from the Democrats. Now, since you brought him up, you say in the book that Donald Trump is a little bit like deja vu for you. Uh, What are some of the more ominous similarities that you've seen between Trump and his supporters and what you saw in Egypt? Well, the echo chamber, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the absolute rejection of facts and truth uh, for the sake of ideology and uh, uh, and propaganda, uh, the, uh, the xenophobia, hate, racism, the uh, conspiracy uh, theory mindset, uh, and the absolute incompetence. And since you left, you've been living and working here in America, and you have a new show on Fusion TV called Democracy Handbook. Um, tell us a little about the show. Well, Democracy Handbook was something that I developed with Fusion where I traveled around the United States and I was uh, following the democratic uh, process in America with an outsider uh, perspective. And it was fun. I mean, we would d- discuss um, gun rights, um, elections, deep state, religion and state um uh, racism, uh, economy, and we would draw a lot of similarities, and uh, it was it was fun. So, for example, in immigration, it's like what, I mean, the problem with immigration guys is that you are selling yourself too well. I mean, why don't you? I mean, I, I mean, yeah. the thing is, nobody wants to come to the Middle East. You know, we have all kinds of problems, but immig- illegal immigration is not one that we have. Do you think that particularly with the Muslim ban and all of this anti-Muslim rhetoric coming from Trump and his allies? that maybe it's about time that we had some kind of a humorous Muslim perspective on American politics and yeah, what's maybe. going on? But like this I, is the moment, perhaps? But, but the thing is, like, I don't, I don't put myself out there as a Muslim apologetic right. or a Muslim person. I am, I'm, a, I'm a guy who, who, who came to America uh, from, from a different country, like many other people. Like I, people could be Italians, Europeans, um, Africans, uh, Latins, uh, it's, 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 uh, I could be a Middle Eastern Christian. Right. I could be a Muslim that does not practice. I could be an atheist. But the thing is, I do not, I'm not coming here to defend Muslim rights. Mm -hmm. I'm coming here in, uh, like when I speak, I speak for 
basic human rights that America has always claimed that they defend, yeah. that I see being undermined by this kind of rhetoric. I am a person who saw how discrimination, when it's in full effect, does discrimination does not discriminate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look at your ID card. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't um, investigate if you're praying five times a day, or you're fasting Ramadan, or if you have a cross around your neck. There are people in Kansas who were killed because they looked like a Muslim, but they were Indian Sikh or yeah. Indian Hindus or whatever religion that they were. They were um, a Lebanese Christian who were killed because he was an Arab. Mm-hmm. They are they are Iranians. Persian Iranians who have been affected by the travel ban while they are Jewish. Wow. Here in Westwood, speaking from Los Angeles, hmm. there are like people don't understand that like a huge portion of the Iranians that live here are Iranian Jewish. Mm-hmm. They are not Muslims. True. They don't understand that like when you put a ban because of your passport, you are affecting so yeah. many people. And there are people who are Muslim who have been here illegally and who are helping into the economy. And the thing is, you are not destroying these people's lives. You are destroying the America that you claim that you wanted to be mm-hmm. a great again. I just, there's the headlines in yeah. USA Today saying that because of the ban, America might lose $18 billion in tourism. Huh. The, the, uh, if you, there's reports about like the American universities having an all-time low uh, regarding to registration from foreign nationals. This is income yeah. going into the country. Yeah. And the foreign nationals pay full tuition. Yeah. So you are destroying the economy of the country that you are claiming yeah. to be great again. The, 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 the greatness of this nation is because it, has, it was a melting pot for all of these people. When you start to discriminate, you are hurting your country more than mm-hmm. anything else. I'm speaking as a resident of yeah. this country, as a resident of this country that when you have like an, a failing economy, it will affect me. Yeah. As a, I, I mean, the, the, right. tra- the travel ban might not affect me, yeah. but it can affect me and it can affect mm-hmm. you. I mean, and, right. even, and, and, and not just that. You know, when, and, and I want to say one more thing about like the fear, because everybody is talking about this, you know, uh, about like what's going to be the next incident? that if it happens, the Muslims will pay for it. Mm. Because right now, people are hoping, please, we do not need another terrorist attack done by a crazy guy who, of course, will be a representative of all our people. And the thing is, when that happens, and when that war that Donald Trump is really asking for, when that happens, don't think that this will affect Muslims. Don't think it will affect Middle Eastern. It will affect white people who are who want to hold their government uh, accountable because at the time of war your voices will always be suppressed because if you speak against um whatever changes that there is in the budget in in healthcare in 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 in, in school education people will tell you to shut up because you're an american how dare you oppose the president in the time of war so this will affect everyone yeah, and you would think that we would learn from Egypt's mistake because you know, both Morsi and Sisi both destroyed their biggest economic contribution, tourism. Of course, I mean, but like you don't even need 
to learn from our mistake. Learn from your country. How about the yeah. eight years of, the, of George W. Bush? How about the, mm-hmm. the McCarthyism era? How about like there's so many like uh, historical events in your own history to learn. From. You don't even need to go, to yeah. learn from other people. But for the sake of my book, I would say, guys, you have to read <laughs> Revolution for Dummies. And here I am shamelessly promoting myself to go get the book. It is funny. It is hilarious. It is totally <laughs> not objective and totally inaccurate and but yet it's a, it offers a different perspective. Well, I can't blame you for the shameless plug. In fact, I'll plug it with you. It's very very entertaining and funny. If things cooled off in Egypt, would you ever be interested in running for president? I will never run for president even the president of uh, uh I don't know, um, uh, the PDA. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the book is called Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring. Bassem Youssef, thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks again to Bassem Youssef for joining me on the podcast. You can order his book, Revolution for Dummies, Laughing Through the Arab Spring on Amazon or download the audio version for free with a special promotion just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Check out his show Democracy Handbook with Bassem Youssef on Fusion TV. For more information, visit fusion.net. And follow Bassem Youssef on Twitter at at B-Youssef. That's spelled with two S's and one F. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.